Thanks, Fabian, and good morning, Christ Central Church. It is great to see you. Uh, happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. It's so good to be together at this 1130 service. Uh, we have been in a season of Lent, which is a season of facing our mortality and our sin, facing the ruins of this world. And today uh, we get to hear the biggest and best news the world has ever known, that sin, de death, and evil do not have the final word. And the reason we know this is true is because Jesus Christ would be crucified on Friday and three days later, he would rise in triumph over sin, death, and the evil one. King Jesus and the kingdom of God wins. And so today on Easter morning, it is a day of triumphal celebration. It is the party of all parties. That's why many of you look forward to dressing up on Easter Sunday, uh, where I wore my suit and tie today. It's why flowers decorate the sanctuary. Today is a celebration. Because if Jesus really did live, die, and rise from the dead... It changes everything. And so today we rejoice and we party. We're going to look at a scripture text this morning that is not normally an Easter text. It's a text that I've been meditating on for some time. It's from the Gospel of Mark, not the resurrection account of Mark 16, which is often preached on Easter Sunday. It is from the beginning of Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. And it's normally preached to talk about Jesus' coming and arrival, but I want to use it this Easter and share how the resurrection, being the climax of the gospel story, guarantees and secures what is spoken of here in Mark chapter 2. And so if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to give attention to Mark 2, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we need you to come and illumine this text uh, so that our minds might be enlightened. Our hearts softened, our lives changed. This morning we celebrate the risen Christ, the living God. And your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And we need you to speak so that we could be transformed because we've heard from you. And so I ask the words of my mouth in the meditation of all of our hearts, we pleasing. Speak to us, Jesus. We need to hear from you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. In this text in Mark chapter 2, Jesus says new, new, new. This word new is used quite often here. And Jesus is saying he is doing something new. I have to admit, I, I like new. I, I don't know about you. Uh, some of you are wearing new clothes this morning. Uh, some of you have on new shoes. You got your Easter shoes on. Some of you got new haircuts this week. You got your Easter cut. I really enjoy new houses 
Not like I have a bunch of houses, but I like new houses. Uh, specifically, I enjoy houses that are remodeled because they were old, worn out, broken down, and someone decided to make it fresh. I love old houses made new. Though many of you know, may know this, remodeling, renovating, it's not an easy thing to do. It's difficult on many fronts, and for some reason, the Masons are gluttons for punishment because our last two houses have been old houses that we've helped make new. Now, the thing about remodeling is that before anything new happens, destruction and demolition of the old has to take place first. And in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is saying he's doing something new. But in order to do something new, some demolition of the old has to take place. In verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting, and some people come to Jesus, and they ask him, why do they fast, but your disciples do not fast? And it's in Jesus' response to fasting that we see him demolishing the old. Now, I don't want to focus too much on fasting this morning, but to understand what Jesus is demolishing, we have to understand what the Pharisees are doing with the practice of fasting. The Pharisees are taking this religious practice, which is a good practice. Most often, fasting is seen in the Bible on occasions of grief, crisis, pain, to express longing for God in his presence. But the Pharisees are increasing what God commands about fasting and making their standard the requirement to be acceptable before God. Because fasting was only required once in the Bible, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We see this in Leviticus 16. Every other fast in the Bible is voluntary. And the Pharisees are fasting twice a week, and they are requiring obedience to their standard. Now catch this, by doing this, they felt like they could measure themselves in relation to God and in comparison to others. Heightening the requirement of the law, adding man-made standards, gave them a sense of being and doing enough for God and being and doing more than others. This is how they felt acceptable, how they felt enough. And it's this approach to living, this approach to God, that Jesus wants to demolish. That anything we might add to God's invitation, to what God invites us into and commands, and we take that thing and we use it to make us feel right before God and better than others, is what Jesus wants to tear down. He calls it old, stale, brittle. And it is the mercy and grace of God when he brings divine demolition to this approach in our lives. God's aim is not the demolition of faith, but it is the demolition of the object of faith when it's the wrong object. See, faith in something and some object is not in decline in our culture, though some might say that. Faith is as present in the human heart as it's been since the beginning of time. I don't know if you know this, but a majority of Icelanders claim to believe in hidden creatures like elves. About a third of Austrians believe in lucky charms. Not the cereal, but real lucky charms. Half of Sweden gives credence to mental telepathy. telepathy. And according to the App Store downloads, younger people in our country are increasingly enamored with astrology. Faith's not on the decline. What people put their faith in is just different. And everybody uses differing objects or visions of life to put their faith in that thing to give a person a sense of acceptance, security, and the feeling of being enough. 
Some use capital R religion like the Pharisees are doing in our text. Some use work and meaningful careers. Some use social causes and social impact. Some use obtaining healthy bodies and having fitness goals. Some using getting to retirement and having a flush bank account. Some use pursuing having a happy family and successful children. We can put our faith in varying visions and we can construct differing systems to feel acceptable and enough before God and to make ourselves feel better than others. And this is what God wants to tear down. Because Christianity is not about a system. It's about being in relationship with a living God. This morning we celebrate Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And Christianity is about being in relationship with the risen Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means life with God is always new. It's fresh. It's dynamic. It's adventurous. Just to name a few things. In our text, Jesus uses three illustrations to describe this new life with the living Christ. Marriage, cloth, and wineskins. I'm going to work backwards in our text as we look at these illustrations. I want to start by looking at the last two illustrations of cloth and wineskin to, to see that it helps us understand how the new life with Christ is animated in our lives. And then I want us to look at the illustration of marriage and see that it helps us to understand what is being animated in our new life with Christ. So let's look first at how new life with Christ is animated in these two illustrations. Verse 21 says, No one sews a piece of unstruck cloth on an own garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Just quickly explain this. New cloth would not be pre-shrunk. If, if someone put new cloth on an old garment and then washes it, the new piece shrinks and it rips the whole garment. And then there's the illustration of the wineskin in verse 22. No one puts new, win, new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Quickly explain this one. Goat skin was used as a container for wine. It's what wineskins were made out of. Old wineskins had stopped stretching. They become old and brittle. New wine needs to ferment meaning gases would be admitted, causing pressure on the wineskin. A new wineskin could expand with the new wine, but if someone puts new wine in old wineskin, the old wineskin would burst and ruin both the wine and the wineskin. And here's what Jesus is saying. You cannot take the new of Jesus' coming, of his life, death, and resurrection and force him into old structures or old belief systems. This approach to life cannot contain Jesus. He brings an entirely new situation. The king is here and, he's, and he lived, died, and rose to be in relationship with you. And to make room for relationship with him, we have to get rid of structures and beliefs that make it impossible to commune with him. Let me be clearer. Jesus is not an additive to your life. He's the essence. He's bringing new life with and in him, which happens when Jesus is the centerpiece of your life. Now, Jesus isn't saying the law of God is bad or religious practices like fasting are bad or that work, exercise, retirement, social causes, the desire for a happy family are bad. What he is saying is that if you are using Jesus as an add-on 
for the sake of your greater vision and your system that lives within your heart, if you're trying to patch Jesus on to your life, then the thing you want, or saying you want, a relationship with Jesus will be ruined. Jesus must be the centerpiece of your life. We build our lives around a risen Savior. We do not use him as an accessory. I love what N.T. Wright uh, says and how he describes this. He, he says, imagine someone gives you a very rare, very unique, valuable, one-of-a-kind, absolutely stunning painting. And this painting is worth more money than you'll ever make in your entire life. And so you, you receive this painting as a gift. You take it into your home and you put it on your living room wall and you decide it's just too amazing to hang in your living room. So you take it to your dining room. You put it on the wall in your dining room and you realize it's too amazing to be in your dining room. So well, maybe I'll, I'll try my family room. It doesn't work there. You, you go, maybe the rec room and it surely doesn't work in your rec room. You try it in your bedroom. It doesn't work there. And then you realize something. You actually don't have the house that can adequately, adequately contain this painting. You need to build a whole new house around the painting. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Relationship with him is the essence. He's the centerpiece. And we must build our lives around him. Let me ask you, where does your life feel stale? Where does it feel stale? Are you putting your faith in places and in things that are old and worn out? Man-made things to make yourself feel acceptable, worthy, and enough. The prophet Jeremiah calls these things broken cisterns that hold no water. It is new life in Christ, the dynamite of life with the resurrected Christ applied by the Spirit that is animated when Jesus is at the center of everything. This is how new life with Christ is experienced or animated. The last thing I want us to see is what is animated. We see this in the illustration of marriage. Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, and those who trust in me are the bride. Right? Marriage is an illustration that Scripture often uses to describe Christ and his church. And Jesus uses it right here to help us understand what new life with a risen Christ looks like. And there's two things that I want to highlight about marriage that are a reality for those of us living in this new life with Christ. Intimacy and celebration. Intimacy and celebration. The first thing is intimacy. Marriage as an institution is a union. When two people become one, that increases communion as each person is known and knows the other. Now, human marriages do not promise perfect intimacy. You can actually feel lonelier and less known in a marriage than when single at times. Jesus is not saying that those who are married have it better to know this new life with Christ. If that was the case, uh, what about the Apostle Paul who was single? What about Jesus who was single? But one reason I think marriage is used as an illustration for our new life with Christ is because marriage is dynamic in nature. It's never static. In a healthy marriage, two people are growing in intimacy with one another by learning more about the other, moving toward the other, being curious to discover the other. And relationship with Jesus is dynamic. We grow in our intimacy with the living Christ day by day. St. Benedict was a 6th century monk, and he had this prayer, uh, Lord, even when we fail, we always begin again. That's become one of my favorite prayers to pray almost every morning. Lord, I thank you that I get to begin again. 
Beginning each new day means a new adventure with Jesus. It means each new day I get to experience his mercies and grace where I failed. New mercies and grace where I'm going to need it. It means putting off the old and putting on the new. It means living in intimacy with a risen Savior who has promised to always be with me by his spirit. Every day we begin again. We get to know him and we get to be known by him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never begun. You would say, I'm just here on Easter morning, but I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe today is the day you begin. And maybe you're here this morning and it's Easter, but your relationship with Jesus feels old and stale and you're longing for a new, fresh experience of Christ. He offers you and he invites you to come and to begin again, to live in intimacy with the risen Christ. Intimacy is not the only thing that's true about marriage and our relationship with Jesus. We also get to experience celebration. Uh, Jesus is asked in our text uh, why his disciples do not fast. And in verse 19, he says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, a wedding in Israel, it was not like today. It wasn't a 30-minute service followed by a reception. A wedding was a feast that lasted for an entire week, filled with incredible eating and, and drinking. It was a celebration. It was a, it was a huge party. Now, I have, I have attended and I've officiated a number of weddings, even today, in, the, in our current moment. But one thing I've never been to, I don't know if you have, is a foodless wedding. Have you ever been to a foodless wedding? Weddings normally have great food and great drinks. A wedding is a horrible time to fast and it's a great time to feast. And Jesus is saying, you will fast when the bridegroom is taken away. It's reference to the cross. But on Easter, when we celebrate Jesus being alive and we commune with him by the power of the Holy Spirit, we feast. We feast in relationship with a living God. Now, it doesn't mean life always feels like a party. It doesn't mean life is always easy. I mean, some of my most favorite memories in my marriage uh, with Rachel have been when we've been going through extremely hard and difficult things that have felt close and intimate. There's this joy in the midst of sadness. In the New Testament letter of Philippians, Paul writes, rejoice always. And he's writing that from prison. Paul is so close to Jesus that he's having a party in jail. It's not... Our circumstances that determine our feasting, but it is our spiritual proximity to the bridegroom. The closer you are to Jesus, the more feasting you will be doing. Now, I'm, this might sound odd to say, but one of the times in the past few weeks that I felt the closest to Jesus and celebrated the bridegroom was at the funeral of Hallie Scruggs. Hallie was a, a victim of the school shooting at Covenant Day School in, in Nashville, Tennessee. Her dad, Chad, is a good friend of mine. He's the senior pastor uh, at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Funeral was two Saturdays ago. And in the, the funeral service, I've had a lot of people go, how, how was it? And, and really, the funeral service felt like holy ground. It really, it, it felt like a thin place where heaven was invading earth because this in, a time of incredible grief and tragedy was filled with tremendous joy and celebration. I'm not sure I've experienced many things like it. Uh, one of the things Chad said in the eulogy was this. He said, I'll never get to walk my little girl down the aisle. But on March 27, 2023, she walked down the aisle 
and was wed to Jesus, the bridegroom. And I know that we feel the sting of death, but she's experiencing the wedding feast. Not only did Chad give us a vision of the party that Hallie was experiencing, he invited all of us into this deeper relationship with Jesus in that moment to trust him and to know him and to know that his presence is with us. And then we concluded this funeral by singing, we will feast in the house of Zion. Thousands of people rejoicing at a funeral because the presence of the risen Christ led us to party at a nine-year-old's funeral. Presence or the absence of Jesus determines feasting or famine. And in Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, I bring the new wine. Psalms, Isaiah, and Revelation tells us that we're given a new song. Prophet Jeremiah tells us we're given a new heart. Ezekiel tells us we're given new bones. The Apostle Paul tells us we're given a new identity. And the Apostle John tells us, as we sang earlier, we are given a new horizon. Life with Jesus is about light, this new life that we have in Christ, a life filled with joy and adventure and mercy and grace and peace and strength and love. And because Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to the law of God, and then he died for the sins of the world, and then he rose in triumph over sin, death, and evil, when we put our faith in Jesus and we experience relationship with Christ, the Father looks at us and he sees Christ in us and us in Christ. Christ is the only object that will give us acceptance and security and the desire to feel enough that we all are longing for. God does not accept you or love you because of what you do. That is pharisaical religion. Brennan Manning is someone who's impacted me for a while through his writings. And Brennan Manning was a Catholic priest, left the priesthood uh, and got married. Uh, and he battled with alcoholism his whole life. His wife would end up divorcing him because of his addiction to alcohol. He had many failures and many flaws, as many people do, as all of us do. But here's the thing I love about Brennan Manning and his writings. He writes as a man who's close to Jesus. He writes as a man who knew what it meant to begin again with new mercies and the grace that was offered to him. He knew his life in Christ was the only thing that gave him his acceptance and value and worth. And this is what he wrote in his memoir. He said, why is Brennan Manning lovable in the eyes of God? Because on February 8th of 1956, in a shattering, life-changing experience, I committed my life to Jesus. Does God love me because ever since I was ordained a priest in 1963, I roamed the country and lately all over the world proclaiming the good news of the gospel of grace? Does God love me because I tithe to the poor? Does he love me because back in New Orleans I worked on Skid Row with alcoholics, addicts, and those who suffer with AIDS? Does God love me because I spend two hours every day in prayer? If I believe that stuff, I'm a Pharisee. And then I feel I'm entitled to be comfortably close to Christ because of my good works. The gospel of grace says, Brennan, you're lovable for one reason only, because God loves you, period. Church, you are accepted and you are enough through Christ and Christ alone. Any other vision than life with God, any other system in which you organize your life to feel enough will become old and stale. The life with the risen Christ is a party. And today we celebrate. 
that in Christ we are offered something new. Today we profess that because Jesus is risen from the dead, he is now loose and at large, active, present, at work, and any person can enjoy the same communion with Jesus that we see that he had with his disciples in the days of his flesh. And may it be so for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord God, may it be so that we would enjoy and celebrate and rejoice that we get to be near you, Jesus, that we get to know you and be known by you, that our identity is outside of ourselves. It's based on Christ and what he's done on our behalf. And because you are living and you now intercede at the right hand of the Father, the Spirit unites us And we get to be in communion with you. And so, God, I pray that we would enjoy that newness, the sweetness of fellowship all the days of our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.